Welcome to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. We've got a very special episode for our listeners today. This isn't the usual fair. It's going to be all about music. A lot of our guests come from an academic background, but we've got a guest with a totally different set of expertise and skills on the podcast today, Ian Nagowski. Ian, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Ian Nagowski is a self-described amateur who has approached Ottoman history through one section of the material culture available in the United States, that of 78 RPM discs, so old records. A researcher and reissue record producer, Ian Nagowski has given numerous talks throughout Europe and the U.S., including the Library of Congress here in Washington, D.C., and what we're going to talk about in this interview is the work Nagowski has done over the past decade on the immigrant musicians from Ottoman territories. He's issued more than 10 hours of music, pertaining to the immigrant communities from the Ottoman Empire on CD, LP, and digitally on his label, Canary Records. You can find Canary Records on Bandcamp or visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for an easy link. So Ian, before we talk more about your work, tell our listeners what we just heard at the outset of the podcast. It was a record from the teens by a woman named Mary Steele, a song called Nare. And I wanted to play it because it demonstrates a, a couple of things that you run into with the old records, one of which is that... Uh, we we don't know who Mary Steele is, and uh, we never will. In fact, I made that copy uh, at the Armenian Library and Museum of America. I was trying to gather as much of the, the Mary Steele material as I could. I think she recorded two separate sessions and three or four different languages, Turkish, uh, Assyrian, Greek, Armenian, I forget what else. She recorded a whole bunch of languages and, you know, very, very folky stuff. So my original idea was that she was a pseudonym for a better-known singer. After listening through to the dozen or so pieces I've gotten to hear, she's clearly not. She's somebody else. But we don't know who. I mean, how do you find somebody named Mary Steele? Well, maybe you just can't. That's it. She just might be a cipher and a dead end. And you run into those sometimes. Yeah. There are good records and there are a lot of interesting stories and she would be a fascinating person to know about, but maybe we'll just never know. And that's part of the frustration and part of the fun of doing the kind of work you do, collecting <laughs> old records, right? You know, our listeners will get to know more and more about your work as we go on, but, you know, I just wanted to ask how, it all, how you got started on this. How did you become obsessed with early 20th century immigrant music from the Ottoman Empire? Well, I was always somebody who went digging around through old records and... I had a, a general rule for myself that I would buy uh, anything that was cheap that was in a language that I, I didn't know, which is everything that isn't English. And often it is cheap because people are looking for 
the music they know already in the right, US. Right, exactly. So 20 years ago when I started buying 78 RPM discs, the stuff that anybody wanted that cost money were uh, records that had to do with the the broad narrative of Americana. It was jazz, blues, right. country, gospel to a much lesser extent. Mm-hmm. So when I started coming across records in Arabic and Turkish and Greek, and they were 50 cents or a dime, I would just pick them up and listen to them. And if they were good, then I hung on to them. But over time, it began to dawn on me that um, a lot of the records were being made in the same place at the same time in these different languages. And it began to dawn on me that there might be some of the same accompanists on different of these records, Mm -hmm. that the performers might have known each other. It turns out that in New York City, there certainly was a small cross-pollinating scene of these performers from the Near East. And, uh, and they did either know each other or knew people in common. Um, and they were very often, you know, recording in the same room in the Woolworth building uh, for Columbia Records. So because I needed to know some biographical stuff about certain of these people, I went looking for every little bit of information I could find and started to build a picture of the world that these people had come from and the world in which they were living when they sat in front of the machine for three minutes mm-hmm. and recorded whatever it was that we get to hear back on these on these old discs. And as we're going to talk about more in this conversation, as we move through some of these old tracks, our listeners are going to hear that a lot of what they were singing about was their immediate experience of coming to America, of being in America, that experience that many of the audience would presumably share, the the, the great experience of migration. It was a... a a way of recording that was very, very present, making the old 70 RPM discs. There is no going back and polishing and overdubbing. There's no mix or equalization. You sit down in front of the microphone, and whatever it is you do during that three minutes, that's what goes out, and that's what gets pressed into what is essentially a rock. You know, the, the records are made 70, 80% stone. Um, so these are things that will last for hundreds and hundreds of years, way past you and I being long gone. And it's that three minutes of that person's life, whatever it was that was important to them at that time. And the ones that survive in many cases are ones that sold prolifically. The ones that are widely still available or in circulation are ones that meant a great deal to their to their audience. Right. And so for the first part of our conversation, what we want to do is set up the early history of recording in the languages of the Ottoman Empire. We're going to play you a track, tell you all about it, and get into that history.
So that was a record made uh, March 8th, 1909 in Constantinople uh, by the Gramophone Company. Um, the artists are almost certainly Roma um, and are credited as uh, Gulistan Hanim, who is the singer, and Arab Mohammed, who is the Zerna player. The title of that track in, in English is uh, Our Night Turned to Daybreak. Uh, Arab Mohammed, uh, his Zerna playing turns up on a bunch of old uh, Turkish 78s of, of that, that period. That disc I'm playing in particular because it's an example of the material that was issued uh, in the United States for immigrants before immigrants in the United States actually started recording. Um, the record companies in the U.S., particularly the, the two big majors before the Second World War, Victor and Columbia, first began marketing stuff to uh, the immigrant populations by issuing actual material from the homeland, some of which was very elevated classical music. Um, you get reissues in the U.S. of Abdulhai Hilmi and Shemil Bey, uh, as well as these like very down-home uh, folky things. Um, kind of runs the gamut. Because they weren't entirely sure what it was that the immigrants were going to buy if they were going to buy anything at all. So it was a kind of a market test. And it turned out that it worked pretty well. Worth pointing out that uh, when that record's issued in the United States, 1910, 1911, 1912, somewhere in there, you know, is, is the, the peak of immigration in the United States for all of U.S. history. 1907 is the single largest year of, of immigration in, in U.S. history. And the record business was brand new, really. The two big disc companies, Victor and Columbia, both start in Washington, D.C., uh, right around, you know, the very end of the 19th century, so they're casting around for, you know, what in the world could people buy? You know, and they're putting out records of, you know, people imitating animals. They're putting out records of people laughing. Um, they're taking lots of shots in the dark just to see what it is that people might want. Um, the first recording sessions 
overseas, um, St. Petersburg, Baku, right. uh, Burma, all that, you know, starts 1903, 1904, mainly to sell machines. That's where you make the money. But people aren't going to buy the machines. They're not going to buy the hardware if there's no software they want to use, on right. It, right? So you go there and you record the stuff that you think they like. And then if they do, then they buy a machine and that's where you make your money. So how do we get to the point where we have the first recordings of the Ottoman diaspora in the United States? 1912, a guy shows up at Columbia Studios named M.G. Parzekian. I'm not sure, but I think Parzekian announces himself at Columbia Studios at the Woolworth Building and says, you're not recording what my people want to hear. Or he says, I have a band and I want to record something. And I think it's the case that Columbia responded to him, that's fine, it'll cost you a thousand dollars and we'll record you and we'll put the records out. That's a ton of money at that time. I'm a thousand dollars in today's money. Ah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying it's, you know, roughly what, you know, like a demo or something. Yeah. It's like what a, a blue collar, you know, streetcar driver or something would make in two weeks. You know, it's a pile of money. And so Prozekian has this band. He's got uh, four guys and uh, one guy is a Syrian um, and uh, several guys are Armenian, and they record about a dozen sides for Colombia, and they sell. People want them. They're all folk music from Urfa, southern Turkish uh, performances. And um, Parzakian was already an entrepreneur in the music business. Um, he was already importing discs from Cairo, Beirut, Constantinople, to market to the immigrant communities. And I think he, you know, he saw a market gap and knew that there were musicians who were talented enough in New York to, you know, move a few units. So he begins putting these things out in 1912. Uh, Columbia sees an opportunity and they continue to record fairly prolifically in Turkish. And as the story of Parsekian you just told kind of illustrates from its very origins, the recording industry of the Ottoman diaspora is essentially like multi-ethnic, multilingual in the sense that this is the same performer recording in multiple languages with people in the ensemble who might be from different uh, ethno-linguistic communities of the Ottoman Empire. Absolutely. Uh, one very often finds people who are recording in uh, three or four languages. The geographic space of New York City has, I think, something to do with that. Okay, so there are uh, enclaves various places. There's a uh, Greek community up around 8th Avenue and 41st Street, but then there's another Greek community down at the bottom of the island around the ports, and another Greek community up around 183rd Street. Up around 183rd Street, there's also an Armenian church and enclave, but then there's another Armenian enclave around 3rd Avenue. Meanwhile, uh, down the Lower East Side, uh, in the Jewish section, there's all the Sephardic and Romanyot Jews and the Romanyot Synagogue. And then, and then across the bridge, over in Brooklyn, big Arab community, in addition to the Arab community uh, on Washington Street. So, for a musician who needs gigs, you, ne you need a place where people are sitting and having drinks and something to eat to play for, you're going to go to all of those places. And you're going to meet people who are smoking water pipes and wearing fezes, you know, all over the place, and know some tunes in common. You know, you'll find something in common with them. So the, the music 
flourishes in that in that sense, and you get a cross pollination, even as people have their own styles and their own limits of what it is they they like to do or their own self image of themselves as as musicians and individuals, artists. And so the first track we're going to play here is actually Parsekian kind of, it's a great example of that ecosystem that he was part of. This is uh, from the Parsekian uh, sessions. This is actually, the singer is a guy named uh, Kazraf Malul, who was a Syrian, uh, and he's singing in Kurdish. This is possibly the first Kurdish language performance made in the U.S. It might be the second. There's another performance of his on the subject of the Navruz holiday. Uh, that was uh, a month or two earlier, which I think might be in Kurdish. I happen to know this one is, and I happen to have a decent copy of it. And it happens to include uh, the word America in it. So I thought it was worth hearing. I'd love a translation of this one, if anybody's able to do it at some point. All right, we're putting the word out there. I'm sure some of our listeners do know Kurdish. So if you understand what you're hearing, get in touch with us and uh, enjoy these tracks.
Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking to Ian Nagoski about the music of the early Ottoman and post-Ottoman immigrants in the United States. Uh, the first track we just heard was from the group of M.G. Parsegian, uh, a performance in Kurdish by the Assyrian singer Kosraf Malul. And then we heard a second track. Ian, can you tell us about the track? Well, Al Jazeera is from the very first recording uh, made in the U.S., marketed to an Arabic-speaking population. It is notable in a bunch of ways. Malouf was uh, second generation. Was uh, He was Syrian, uh, born in the U.S., and performed as an active hybridizer. Uh, before he recorded that performance in 1913, he had uh, published a number of pieces of sheet music, uh, including a song called The Egyptian Slide, and was somebody who was actively interested in hybridizing American popular music and, and Arabic music. He ran a, a record label. He was one of two people on Washington Street in Manhattan to run record labels, mm -hmm. uh, the other being A.J. Maksud, who was an Egyptian mm -hmm. copt. Uh, Malouf's label uh, was mostly of his band playing this hybridized music that he was personally responsible for. His label ran through the 20s, and when the Depression hit in the 1930s and things got tough, he was on the road a lot. Uh, we know he played in Wilmington, Delaware, and Baltimore, and you know, kind of all up and down the, the East Coast. Wound up going out to Janet Studios in the 30s and recorded a bunch of organ pieces marketed specifically to uh, roller rinks and to funeral parlors. So he was a working musician. Published a lot of sheet music of arrangements of Western popular music. Interesting guy. And so as you said, we have this particular recording we listened to is from before the First World War, actually, so very early, but it's by a second generation Arab immigrant to the United States from the Ottoman Empire. Right. At this point, Arab diaspora is creating their own music in America. Yep. So let's talk more about the immigrant experience as, as it's expressed in some of the records that you've uh, found and restored and digitized and made available. Want to start out maybe by introducing one of the more famous tracks from that period on this theme with the title, Why Did I Come to America? Neden Geldim Amerikaya, so in Turkish. Tell us about this track. This is Achilles Poulos, um, who emigrated through Ellis Island, rather like the, the uh, Elia Kazan film, America, America. Uh, he was a Greek guy from um, uh, northwestern Anatolia and came with a, a good Armenian pal of his. Uh, both of them were Udis. So they both uh, hit the U.S., in the, the teens and start recording in the early 20s for little independent record companies. In particular, the little independent record company run by M.G. Parzekian after Columbia stops recording in Turkish. They start making uh, records there about 1921, 22 thereabouts. And between about 1925 and 1930, Poulos records 125 performances. So a ton of material. Very, very active performer. He ran a, a little nightclub uh, up on 8th Avenue around 41st Street. Just a hole in the wall, really, where they you know, serve bootleg booze. In fact, his granddaughter tells me that the, uh, the cops would come and, and shut the place down and throw Poulos and his, his wife Mary in the tombs uh, for a couple of nights. And then they would get out and they'd just open up another place immediately across the street and go right back to selling booze and playing music. This was far and away his hit. 
a record that sold well to the immigrant communities in the U.S. in the 19-teens, 20s, 30s sold eh, a few hundred thousand copies, something like that. A particularly poor seller sells like seven copies or 25 copies or something. It's like an academic book. Yeah, exactly. It's got a limited market, right? This record sold probably tens of thousands of copies. And it was a 12-inch disc. So it was $1.25 instead of a dollar or 85 cents. It was a luxury item. But practically every Turkish-speaking household in the United States owned a copy of this record. I personally have had 10 copies over the course of my I keep giving them away because they're everywhere. It's extremely common. Sold like hotcakes. Well, then, after this record comes out, Poulos records all this stuff. 1930, he just vanishes. And so the story circulated for years and years and years that he had been ratted out to immigration services for making a record that was um, unpatriotic, that was anti-American in some sense, and that he'd been deported. That's the story that I was told. That's the story I believed for years. Well, no. Turns out uh, he had arthritis and had to stop playing. Winds up moving to Connecticut and going to work for a coffee roaster, which is where he died and is buried. 1970, he died. Incredible. He just disappeared and people didn't know what happened to him. He he had just retired from music. Yeah, nobody went looking. Nobody asked the question. His uh, granddaughter, Stacy, who I mentioned, owns all of his diaries in a shoebox under her bed in old Turkish Ottoman script. And she has so far kept them rather jealously and has not made them available for uh, study yet. We hope that one day this invaluable resource of Poulos's diaries uh, will, will come to light because it would be a, a, a great thing for anybody who's interested in, in immigration to the U.S. All right, well, we're going to play that mega hit by Poulos <laughs> and then uh, talk about why maybe people would consider it anti-American. If those, right? those people who speculated, why they speculated that he might be considered anti-American. Neden geldim Amerika'ya Neden geldim Amerika'ya Tutuldum kavrim amane Tutuldum kavrim amane Şimdi bin kere düşmanım Şimdi 
Part of the appeal of the song is that sense of, of regret that he, he makes no bones about. I wish I never came, never saw. Yeah, America looks great off the boat. And then you start running into the cops. And then you start looking for work. And then you get taken advantage of because you don't speak the language or don't know what's going on. And then you start to see what America's made of. There, it became a rather popular genre of uh, books in the in the 1930s and 40s. The um, uh, narratives of uh, immigrants uh, to the U.S. talking about what America looked like to them. There's a, a wonderful book by uh, Salom Rizik, which you may know, uh, a Syrian Yankee, in which he makes extraordinary observations on the nature of consolidation of power uh, within democracy and capitalism. Really. Um, quite a, a beautiful piece of writing and uh, maybe you know um, anything can happen um, by uh, George Papashvili do you know that book mm. let me read you a, a little section of that actually that I, I have with because um, it, it really describes what's going on in New York at the time so George Papashvili uh, wrote a memoir called anything that uh, anything can happen which was an enormously popular thing it was a bestseller book of the month club kind of deal in 1945 uh, he was an immigrant from Georgia, one of very few in the U.S. at the time, and uh, lived in Manhattan for a, a period when he first arrived, and b- describes early on in the book uh, what what life was like as a immigrant factory worker at the time. There's one passage in particular that says, uh, but no matter how the work week went, the Sundays were good, because then we made all day the holiday and took ourselves to Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx, where there was country and flowers. We would make fires and roast cubes, lamb shashliks, and walk on the grass and forget the factory. For one day, anyway, we could enjoy to live like human beings. 
From six o'clock onward, every Sunday morning, the subway was packed full of Russians, Syrians, Greeks, Armenians, all kinds of people carrying their grandpas and babies and gallon jugs and folding chairs and charcoal sacks and hammocks and samovars and lunch baskets and rugs. Everyone hurrying to their regular place in the park so they could start tea and lay out lunch and make the day last a long, long time. So that was it. You know, you're working six days a week for one day where you can live like a human being and, you know, have some grass under your feet and, you know, carry your grandpas and your babies in the subway and be around people who were, well, maybe they didn't speak your language exactly, but close enough. That barbecue picnic culture they share, they go going out to the park. Yeah, just uh, something that reminds you of home. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of what the, the meaning of the records are. This is a big part of why M.G. Barzakian went to Columbia Records and said, I, th- I think, you, you know, we should be making a record of my band here. The fact of representation matters immensely to people. Yes, we count too. Yes, look, we're on records. Us. People who didn't even own record players, gramophones, would sometimes buy the records just to have them, just as proof that our people also matter here in America. Look, there's a song I know. There's a song from where I come from on a record. The very fact of it matters immensely. But record players were, were you know, prohibitively expensive. Uh, very often, you know, there's a record player in the cafe, and you go in and you, you know, pay a quarter or something, and they'll, they'll play you aside. There's a, a, a book called The Immigrant's Day in Court, which uh, lays out one particular scam that was being run in the, the teens. Some grifter put out ads in uh, ethnic newspapers saying you can buy a gramophone on easy terms, small payments, and I will throw in records in your native language from your homeland. All you got to do is, you know, just fill out this form and send away and we'll bring the record player to your house with the songs of your people, wherever you're from. Right? So the, the scam was, guy shows up with a record player in this giant crate it's basically furniture you know it's Mm -hmm. a big piece of high-tech furniture and is instructed to collect all of the money immediately which then of course the person doesn't have and so the company keeps the initial payment and the record player and in one case this guy made like millions of dollars over the course of a few years And when he was caught and taken to court for fraud, he already had like tens of thousands of dollars in a slush fund to cover his legal fees, winds up paying, you know, a pittance and gets away with it. That's that's what America was like. It's incredible. And it's it's incredible to think that and this kind of will transition into our next song a bit that, you know, there was so much animosity or fear building towards immigrants as the immigrant population of the U.S. got larger during that period, as if they were the threat when, of course, immigrants who came to the U.S. were disproportionately likely to be victims of such all sorts of things, ranging from grifters to bureaucratic stuff with the government to stuff at work. They're extremely vulnerable. Well, and, and you know, I, I'll point out that some of that is uh, systemic in the sense that there were uh, scientific studies, you, you may be aware, being done at the time where... Um, Academics were going to mental hospitals and um, prisons 
and doing demographic research and trying to demonstrate that the wave of immigrants that had arrived from the end of the 19th century up to about 1920, uh, that those people were predisposed to criminality and mental illness and that testimony was made before Congress to that extent. And it is that kind of um, scientific proof that helped pave the way for the, the Johnson Rita. Right. That was eugenics. That was, that was America in the 1920s. So you, you, you don't wonder why someone would ask, why did I come here at all? I wish I never came right. when you have to face all that. So let's play this track that actually speaks directly to the experience of immigration quotas, the Johnson Reed, Johnson Reed Act you just mentioned. Nishan Morideros Kaljikian, born July 1886 uh, and died in uh, October of 1962. Uh, he arrived at Ellis Island uh, November 13th, 1911, at the age of 25, from present-day Alaza, um, Harput. A lot of Armenians arrived from there, eastern Anatolia. So he joins his brother in Chelsea, Massachusetts, and works first as a barber and then as a surveyor for the city of Medford. Uh, it was his career his whole life. He only recorded about six songs. This one is uh, his own lyrics. I don't know the origin of the melody. Probably he got the melody from somewhere and just plugged in his own words. But you can hear the beginning of uh, each verse, the word America. And then periodically through it, you can hear the words melting pot. It is uh, a direct protest song to uh, the Johnson Reed Act. And the fact that... uh, only 130 uh, Armenians a year were allowed into the U.S. Uh, after 1924, uh, the result of which was that families were being kept apart and the uh, scattered Armenians all over the world were not able to be in touch unless they were rather wealthy, you know. So there are very few recordings of Armenians uh, before the Second World War that are in any sense complaints. The vast majority are party songs. This is, in fact, I believe, the only protest song in the Armenian language that I have ever heard from that period. All right, the track is called Uskegukas, meaning Where Do You Come From? Enjoy this track, and then we'll be back with Ian Nagoski talking about the music of the early Ottoman diaspora in the United States. Stay tuned. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Ian Nagoski. We've been listening to these tracks in different languages, early recordings of people who came from the Ottoman Empire, or indeed, maybe even were children of people who came from the Ottoman Empire in the United States. And when we started, Ian, you mentioned that some of the first music that these immigrant communities in the U.S. consumed was actually from the homeland and, and being sent over, but that a recording industry emerges very quickly and that these diaspora communities more broadly are emerging as major factors in sort of increasingly transnational communities that these uh, immigrants are part of. And then during the First World War, you have this big shift where for a lot of these groups, Armenians, Greeks, people from greater Syria, it's an incredibly traumatic period, a, a catastrophe, displacement. So you have this paradox where the people who are away in the diaspora are actually observing the tragedy of what's going on back home. So let's talk about this recording from 1917 uh, that you've got. It's a recording of a song called Grunk by Zabel Panosian. This is a record that's become uh, incredibly important to me uh, personally. I couldn't believe how good it was when I encountered it. And I couldn't believe that uh, I couldn't find anybody who'd ever heard of it. It seemed very strange that something so good would have been so completely forgotten for so long. And I've become uh, obsessed with learning everything I can about the, the person who made this record. It turns out that it was a massive seller. It was a huge, huge hit when it was issued in 1917. It stayed in print continuously until Columbia Records stopped putting out records in the Armenian language in 1931. So uh, well into the Depression, this record kept selling. Probably almost every Armenian household with a gramophone in it had a copy of this record during the 19-teens and 20s. So who is Zabel Pinozi? She was born uh, May 1893 in northwestern Turkey. Uh, she immigrates June 7th, 1891 to the U.S. and in April 1896 was married to a photo engraver named Aram Sarkis Pinozian, who was 12 years her senior. She lived in Brookline, Massachusetts from about 1908 to about 1920 and sang there as a, a backup singer with the short-lived Boston Opera Company, actually uh, behind uh, Tetrazzini, uh, who she seems to have greatly admired. Zabel only recorded about a dozen performances over the course of about 11 months, uh, 1917, 1918. And then she kind of vanishes. For a long time, I, I couldn't find out what happened. I think part of the problem was that Zabel thought that she was a great artist. And the way that Columbia Records released performances in Armenian, Turkish, Arabic, Greek, was as part of their E-series for ethnic. They later changed that to the F-series for foreign. I don't think she saw herself that way. I think she saw herself as a, a serious artist. During the late teens, she goes on tour all over the U.S. with Armanak Shamaradian, uh, doing performances in benefit for the Near East Relief Fund. And then, in the early 20s, she goes on tour in Europe, and we didn't know much about all that for a long time because she used a different name. She went under Zabel Aram for about the next 
12, 15 years. It's not really clear why. But she's traveling with uh, her daughter, who winds up becoming a, a Spanish dancer, uh, and an actress appears in a 1930s uh, Bob Hope film. And uh, Zabel travels all over the place, um, is quite a famous artist, doesn't make any more records. She had three kids. All three of those kids didn't have kids themselves, so there are no descendants. When I published a piece about Zabel in the Armenian Weekly, uh, I was contacted by a uh, grandnephew who read the piece, remembering his great aunt, uh, didn't know that she ever had a career as an artist, as a singer. Just remembered that she was uh, irascible and a bit difficult to get along with in the family. Anyway, the reason this record was so immensely popular uh, was that it spoke directly to the uh, conundrum, the problem that Armenians in the U.S. found themselves in, which is that things had gone terribly, terribly, terribly wrong at home, and it was difficult to get news. Didn't know what happened to your family. You didn't know what, was, what happened to everyone you ever knew. Didn't know if you were ever going to get to go home again. Now you're stranded in the U.S., there is nowhere else to go. So the song is Grunk. There are a million Grunk songs in Armenian. It means crane. And this particular one, it turns out, is one that, that Zabel herself knew as a child growing up. They're her words. It's her melody. It's her arrangement. She made that very clear in print. She was a, a great fan of, of Gomitas's and, in fact, went to visit him in, in Paris uh, and wrote an account of meeting him at the uh, mental asylum. Rather a touching scene, as a matter of fact, where she asked him, Father, is it okay to sing your choral music uh, just by myself? And he said, of course, my daughter, sing it any way you feel it. And um, yeah, she seemed heartbroken as she she left him there. Grunk is a it's an extraordinary performance, um, a, a rather singular piece and something that she performed at practically all of her concerts. It meant a great deal to her and sold like crazy to Armenians who were desperate for news from home. Those are the lyrics. It's asking a crane, uh, hasten not to your flock. Um, you'll arrive soon enough. Uh, tell us any news from home. And it tore people's hearts out. Yeah. Of all the copies of this record I've ever found, there's this performance, and then there's another one that looks exactly the same. Same numbers on it, same matrix numbers, same catalog numbers, same everything. But you put the needle on it, and it's a major third higher, and it's got little Tweety Bird sound effects at the beginning, and it's not as good. And I was like, why are there, why are there two of these? Apparently, Columbia Records made so many copies of Grunk that they had to go to an alternate take in order to keep the record in print. They like, probably wore out the stampers for the original. Mm. And the take they wound up using was a longer take that was intended for 12-inch release and is 30 seconds longer. So they sped it up to cram the grooves into the side of a 10-inch disc to keep it in print. So you have to slow the thing down to get it to play at the correct pitch, you know, to get the piano. So, uh, so if you run into a copy of Grunk and it's got little Tweety Bird sound effects, you have to slow it down. There are two different takes in circulation. Anyway, 
record nerd stuff. <laughs> it's it's incredible stuff, and and this particular record that we're about to play uh, is a good example of music that sort of is arising out of the musical tradition of Armenians well before the First World War, but then takes on a new meaning within the context of the war, within the context of the genocide, uh, and sort of has come to mean something different and much more profound in terms of historical memory for that community. Yes, you're exactly right. You make a really good point there, that um, it's a song that uh, preceded the genocide and then took on new meaning in, in the years following. And then, isn't it interesting also that it was then left behind? That you get a generation or two later and nobody remembers the song or the record. Nobody talks about it. Nobody's looked into it. No Armenian ever wrote anything about Zabel Panosian in a hundred years. There are a lot of interesting questions about that, I think one of which has to do with the the nature of, of immigration to America and the demands that America makes on immigrants to assimilate and the need to be American first. So uh, a, a child whose grandparents were of Zabel's generation and were raised in a household that spoke some Armenian or Turkish or something and uh, you know maybe went to Armenian school on Saturday when grandma and grandpa die and their records are sitting around in the attic, what do you do with them? What do they mean to you as a grandchild, as a great-grandchild? Are they interesting or important? Maybe you don't have a machine to play them on anymore. Maybe you barely remember them ever being played when you were young. And if you do remember them, is it a good memory or is it a little embarrassing? Because it's so mm, not American. It's very old world. It's a part of you that the kids in school didn't celebrate. If you had to dress up and do those dances at the church, uh, you know, to keep your immigrant status with your family, that was stuff that you hid from the kids in school, you know? So then what do you do with the records? We've all seen Antiques Roadshow. So we know there are antiques. And some of these things, these old records, people want them, right? So you go and you find yourself a, a record collector. You find one of these nerds, guy that smells like cigarettes and hot dogs and is into this weird old music, right? So you find one of these guys and you bring him this Zabel Panosian record or whatever it is that's in the attic or the basement. And he looks at it and he goes, well, I don't collect foreign it's actually a, a line from the movie Ghost World, uh, where there's a 78 collector character. I don't collect foreign. Nobody collects foreign. People want blues records and jazz records and country records. America didn't want Zabel Panosian either. We had no interest in saving her and her story. That voice was not helpful to understanding us as Americans for a real long time. Well seems like a shame it's a good record yeah and so now we're, we're going to play that track for our listeners that had a nice thorough setup and I, <laughs> thank you thank you for that ian uh and then we're going to play another track that might be in a similar vein uh so stay tuned
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Ian Nagoski. Uh, we just heard two songs. Uh, the first one, which we had a nice story for, is Abel Panosian's Grunk. Uh, and the last one we just heard is a song that's called a Smirneko Minore. I do not know Greek, um, but I know that that's something to do with Izmir, and it's a sad song, and it might, on its surface have something to do with the tragedy that befalls Izmir after the First World War, the destruction of Izmir and the destruction of the Greek community of Izmir. Turns out that's not the case, right? No. Um, uh, That record was made uh, July 1919. Um, And in fact, she had recorded it about uh, six months earlier in in 1918. No, it's just a minor key song in the Smyrna style. Um, It's a, a kind of song very close to the you know, gazelles and things that are enormously popular through the, the uh, Eastern Mediterranean in a, a bunch of different languages. Marika was, you know, Greek. She's from Kos. I think she probably traveled around uh, the Eastern Mediterranean quite a bit. Um, she seems to have a, an enormous repertoire. She records uh, 250 songs uh, between 1918 and 1929. In fact, her very first recordings were made in Alexandria, Egypt end of 1914, beginning of 1915. And then she and her husband, Costantinos, uh, Costas, uh, Gus, he was called in America, immigrate through Ellis Island, and they travel around uh, the U.S. First instance we have of her in the U.S. is at a uh, patriotic Hellenic conference in Pittsburgh in uh, 1916 or 1917. And then by 1918, they're settled in New York on 41st Street, and uh, she begins recording first for Victor Records and then for Columbia Records and records prolifically for both labels for a decade. Uh, they open a little nightclub there called Marika's, which is um, very, very successful, apparently, and really set the stage for a scene of nightclubs that, that wound up sprouting up uh, in that area uh, over the next few decades. But during her career, she was actively attempting to Americanize and hybridize the music that she knew and loved. Uh, she recorded a bunch of material accompanied by Nat Shilkrit's orchestra, which was a pop band of the time. Uh, Nat Shilkrit later won a couple of Grammys for his work on Showboat, the musical. But it would say it, she's remembered for the material that she recorded with her quartet. Mm-hmm. And it's significant in particular that she has, on almost all of those sides, a guy named Marco Sifnios who plays cello and harmony, counterpoint, which did not exist in any other Greek performers at the time. So it's musically innovative to have a second harmonic line uh, going in the music. She was an extraordinary person. There were other Greek women who were already stars in the U.S. Around the corner, there's a woman named uh, Kula Antonopoulou, Madame Kula, who had her own little record label, Panhellenion, and was recording prolifically uh, artists in in Greek and Turkish. But Kula Amalia Bacchus, who was a friend of uh, Marika's and uh, Romagnot, um, and the other Greek women who were around, all performed some... Chefticelli stuff, some belly dance stuff. They'd get it, shake it for the boys, you know? Nine Greek men for every one Greek woman in New York at the time. You know, the immigrants are coming to make money and go home with the money. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of ideas about, like, having a family. So these immigrant men 
you know, they get a little money in their pocket. It's nice to go sit somewhere where you can watch a woman mm-hmm. sing and dance and stuff that you remember from home, you know, mm-hmm. feels good. You're willing to pay a few bucks for that, right? All of these women, Amalia, Kula, you know, they're, they're shaking it a little bit. Marika never does. Not once. There are no traces of belly dance stuff on any of her records. She only sings songs of love, uh, patriotism, and becoming American. And she becomes a big star. And then the Depression hits 1929, ends her career. That's it. No more Marika Papagica on record. Uh, she and her husband move out to a uh, farming community on Staten Island, uh, where she dies at home, 1942. Uh, she was 52 years old. Lived the American dream and died on an island far, far from the island where she was born and raised. Incredible story, and it, it's taken us into a, a new uh, space. We've played a couple heavy songs and had a couple heavy stories, <laughs> but we want to switch it up, do something a little more light. We're going to play a, a song in Armenian called Sude Sude. It's all a lie. Um, and talk more about uh, nightlife, nightclubs, New York City, and uh, the Ottoman and post-Ottoman diaspora in the United States and their music. So stay tuned. Oh, 
have a good friend named Harry Kazelian, who's a, a music researcher, runs a blog called Keftime USA. Harry's been a, a great, great help in translating and helping me learn about some of the stuff I'm interested in. And when I got interested in that performer, in Edward Bogosian, uh, Harry was really surprised. Really? That, that guy? Why? He's not a very good singer, you know? I said, well, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I like the Ramones better than I like Lid Zeppelin. So Bogosian's a rocker. And no, he's not the greatest singer on earth. But he never, that wasn't the point of Edward Bogosian. Bogosian was a comedian. He was a party guy. Uh, he was born in 1900 in Istanbul. His father was a actor and a theater teacher. So he really grew up on the stage, uh, was performing professionally by his teens. Comes to the U.S., uh, you know, by about 1920, starts recording for um, Pharos Records on Third Avenue, which is a little, it was run out of the Vartagian Brothers watch and jewelry repair shop. And they had this little record label. In fact, they bought M.G. Parzekian's masters and kept all of those in print during the late 20s and released some other stuff, including the first records of Edward Bogosian. Bogosian uh, travels prolifically as a, uh, in theater troops uh, performing plays. He uh, did his own translation of uh, uh, Arshin Malalan, very famous kind of operetta, I think from Georgia. It's a story about him, a rich man who pretends to be poor in order to get somebody to fall in love with him, you know, that kind of, kind of thing. Enormously popular play and was performed all over the U.S. for Armenian, Greek, and Turkish-speaking audiences. So he's a comedian, and he's also a picnic guy. He's a, he's a sort of drunk uncle type who would get up and, and jam and sing these sort of blue humor songs about people exploiting each other, immigration, playing poker, being lazy, getting drunk, you know, kind of off-color party jams. And he was beloved. He had a long and, and, and very successful career. But Sude Sude was by far his hit. It's, uh, it's, it's his own lyrics, um, and it was recorded so many times by so many people that, as my friend Harry says, it's you know, sort of the Armenian equivalent of Havana Gila. It's, it's something that Harry just has to put up with at family functions. It never even occurred to him, you know, like you know, where it came from or who the original person was, but it was, it was Bogosian. He's accompanied there by a, a band from uh, Philadelphia uh, who kept the song going for a long time. And the song, as you uh, pointed out to me, is you know still played um, all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. I immediately recognized it from records that I had found in Turkey, in Armenian, not knowing much about the history. I was like, oh, this is some Armenian party music, maybe wedding music or music for the, the tavern or what have you. Indeed, it, the one I found was performed by a very famous Armenian sort of tavern singer, indeed the king of the tavern, Heiko. What's interesting with that was that you had these 45s in Armenian that were being sold in Turkey, uh, but then on his LP, all the tracks are in Turkish. So they actually translated Sude Sude oh, into right. uh, Turkish. It's a song, with, and they translated oh, it pretty literally. Right. It's called Herşe Yalan, like everything uh -huh. is a lie. So it's kind of fascinating the afterlife of this song that makes it back to Turkey where there's still a pretty sizable Armenian community to this day. Yeah. So let's play one more of these songs in the more racy, fun-loving genre from the period. Set it up for us. So, stock market crash, 1929, the ethnic recording business in America grinds to a halt. Almost no records in Greek, Turkish, Armenian, Arabic, 
get made in the U.S. for about a decade. 1931 to 42, just dead. A lot of people's careers just end. A lot of people just don't make any records. 42, recording starts again. Things have changed. People have gotten older. A lot of the same generation of people who were recording in the 1920s uh, are now middle-aged and are now seasoned veterans and frankly have lived their lives at night. You know, they've just been out in the clubs. They've just been, you know, an oud in one hand and a glass of wine and a cigarette in the other five, six, seven nights a week for decades, right? Hard partying people. And up around where Marika's club had been, 41st and 8th Avenue, there's a bunch of restaurants, some record stores, and nightclubs start opening. Uh, the Egyptian Gardens, the Britannia, it's like a strip of about seven, eight blocks where there are these oriental nightclubs, as they were referred to, where during the 30s and 40s, Turkish, Arabic, Greek, and Armenian-speaking people would go get dressed, party, have a few drinks, listen to some music, throw some money at some dancers, that kind of thing. Fun times. And there are certain musicians who are real staples of that scene. Um, one of them is a, a violinist who is Bulgarian named Nick Donif. Another is a, an oud player, an Armenian guy who immigrated with Achilles Poulos named Marco Melkon. Donif and Melkon become the de facto house band for a small circle of independent record labels that start up in the early mid-1940s and then run through the 50s. Um, Metropolitan, Califone, Mayray, and Balkan Records. There's kind of shared ownership within and among that little circle of, of labels. Bogosian, who we just listened to, recorded all of his stuff in the 1940s for Metropolitan. Um, and Donif and Melcon uh, accompany him on some of that stuff. This is another uh, individual who's accompanied by Donif and Melcon, who was somebody who had been around in the 1930s and 40s. It's hard to tell exactly how old she is, matter of fact. I, I'm guessing she's probably about Marika's age. I'm guessing she's probably born around 1895, something like that. She's rather middle-aged, I think, by the time she makes any records in the 1940s. Her name is uh, Virginia Magidou. And for a long time, I went around playing Virginia Magidou records, telling people we'll never know who Virginia Magidou is. I was convinced that she was one of these ciphers, like Mary Steele. She doesn't appear in any public records. I, th I figured it was a stage name and that, you know, she was just a dead end. But then, just like two months ago, I found out that there's like five hours of interviews with a Greek accordion player named John uh, Giarnos, who had been in New York and played in this scene on, up and down 8th Avenue. And uh, Steve Frangos recorded in the 1980s a bunch of interviews with this, this accordion player, Giannaros. And there's like five, six, seven minutes where Giannaros talks about Virginia Magidou. He knew her and loved her as a person, like he really, enormous respect. He said that she was the best singer in the Turkish language in the U.S. Now, she only made two sides in Turkish. All of the other sides that she ever recorded were in Greek. He also talked a little bit about her life. She was uh, married twice to sailors. Uh, it's not clear how much her husbands were even around. Um, he said 
that she was still alive, but she was very, very sick, uh, had gone blind, and then began to tell the story of how she went blind uh, by illustrating a uh, story of a recording session. He said that uh, they went one time to record. The engineer brought uh, two gallons of Ujo. And the first thing Virginia did was drank a gallon by herself. And the engineer goes, Virginia, aren't you going to leave any for the rest of us? And she's, I, I left you a gallon. But she couldn't record a note till she had a gallon of Ujo in her. So, uh, Virginia, <laughs> she was a, a partier. She seems like an extraordinary person. And she recorded a lot of uh, real rough and ready kind of stuff. There's a great song of hers called uh, I Was Born a Badass Chick. Uh, which is a, a cover of a uh, Rose Ashkenazi song. Um, she recorded songs about, yeah, good times and hard living. Um, and this one in particular is a song about uh, having to deal with Greek men who are more interested in American girls than they are in Greek girls. Yeah. And the, the translation of the title you got here is Saucy American Girls. Saucy American Girls. All right. Enjoy. Shoferaka, Pasipiata, Dalgadaka, Ahmetae Moro. 
Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here. I've been talking to Ian Nagoski, and we've heard some of uh, his favorite songs, uh, old 78 RPM records from the early Ottoman diaspora. If you want to get more of this type of stuff, we've got the track list, we've got the names of the singers, we've got a link to Ian Nagoski's Canary Records label on Bandcamp, where you can get some of the tracks for yourselves if you like. There's lots more we can talk about, but uh, we thought we'd end with just like one more track that's got a great story to it, Uh, a song by a particularly remarkable individual from sort of the tail end of that uh, late Ottoman diaspora. Well, this is, I just wanted to share a, a beautiful record that I happened to encounter by a guy named James K. Sutherland. I went looking for who in the world James K. Sutherland was, who had apparently self-released a double LP of Utaksims uh, in Flint, Michigan, sometime in the 1960s. I didn't really find much. But a, a music researcher friend uh, in, in the Netherlands had mentioned him in the footnotes of uh, some work that he had done on the, the great Chemel Bay. It turns out James K. Sutherland had corresponded with Jamil Bey's son. What in the world? What's a guy in Flint, Michigan doing corresponding with Jamil Bey's son about details of toxin performance and self-releasing it? Well, it turns out that not only did he self-release this double LP of of Utaksims, he also self-published an autobiography, uh, which is called uh, Adventures of an Armenian Boy. So we're lucky to have the kind of life story of, of this guy. He was born Hagop Lutfi Sarkezian, third child of parents from Aleppo, Syria, uh, who were fleeing the Hamadian massacres in the 1890s, six months before his birth. His parents uh, bought an organ for the family home, and he, he studied organ. Uh, he studied Oud. 1913 to 1915, he uh, studies at Antip College, but August 1915... Uh, his family avoid, averted deportation and potential death by traveling on foot and arriving by hire carriage to Aleppo as unwelcome immigrants, he wrote in his autobiography. So his family struggles to survive and witnesses uh, the starvation and abuse of people around them while he's a teenager and he narrowly gets through with typhus fever, continues to study uh, both medicine and music, until March 5th, 1920, when he leaves his whole family behind there in Aleppo, goes to Beirut, sails from there to Marseille, and from there, uh, April 11th, 1920, uh, arrives at Providence, Rhode Island. Um, it was bringing, he was carrying his oud with him, and the customs official said that uh, he had to pay duty on the oud to bring it in unless he could play it. And so... Uh, 20-odd years old, he takes the oud out of its bag and plays My Country Tis of Thee, and was therefore allowed to bring the instrument uh, without paying tax. 
He then goes to Watertown where he has family and um, then winds up in Iowa City, which he says, which I love so much now and was a fearsome torture chamber at the time. He attends school while working menial jobs, lawn mowing, dishwashing. Completes his pre-medical degree September 1922 and his medical degree June 1926. He said it was a common saying at the time, I'm 200% American. I hate everyone. So he changes his name from Sarkeesian to Sutherland. And in his autobiography, he says it's his only regret of his entire life that he did that. Winds up getting married, a bunch of kids, um, very successful career as a cardiologist in Flint, Michigan. Lifelong Democrat, becomes a coroner, and then runs for various offices, uh, big uh, FDR guy. Winds up being an art collector, buys a 1649 Stradivarius, uh, writes an article for the Strad magazine, a magazine for Stradivarius collectors in which he bemoans the fact that uh, Middle Eastern music is not well known or loved among uh, Western musicians. And uh, late in life, tries to leave behind a a legacy, self-publishes this extraordinary book. I mean, beautifully written, yes, profusely illustrated on the most amazing paper with gilt edges, beveled boards, signed numbered edition with scales and details and maps and this elaborate document he's trying to leave behind, as well as this this record that he was trying to show what he could do on the oud. And if it hadn't turned up in a basement, well, I don't know. It's such a good record, and he's such a good player. Seems like it's worth sharing. And we're very grateful for you giving us the opportunity to share this story and this record with our audience. Ian Nagoski, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been quite a pleasure, and I wish we could do many more hours of this conversation and great music from the Ottoman diaspora, but we're going to leave it at that. want to remind our w- listeners to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for supplementary materials for this episode, uh, and to join us next time in another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. The track we're leaving you with is Husseini Ashiran Dance and Taksim by Dr. James K. Sutherland.
Thank you.